again, friends, and welcome on into episode 226 of The Sco Show, probably a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network and brought to you by the great folks at SB Nation. My name is Mark Schofield here in the big chair for today, December 29th, 2021. And we're going to do a couple of things today. We're going to talk about Jacksonville. Obviously, the Patriots have to win a game this weekend against the Jacksonville Jaguars, and that opponent probably could not come at a better time. So we'll talk about Jacksonville. We're going to talk about the college football playoffs. Those games kick off New Year's Eve. You've got Alabama versus Cincinnati in the Cotton Bowl. That's the early game. And then the late game, the Orange Bowl, Georgia against Michigan. I've got sort of a what to watch for piece that's coming over at USA Today. So we're going to talk about that as well. Also going to talk about John Madden uh, at the the end of the show. Um, So we've got a lot to cover. So let's dive into it. We kick off as we always do your usual cavalcade of announcements. Please follow along with the hijinks on the stake I'm at, at Mark Schofield. Check out the work, USA Today's Touchdown Wire, Matt Waldman's RSP Quick Game Podcast, Big Blue View, Bleeding Green Nation, Pat's Pulpit, Blogging the Boys, whole lots of places you can find me. But as I said, the easiest is on the stake a map at Mark Schoolfield. Let's talk Jacksonville. And there's probably not an easier way to sum up where the Jacksonville Jaguars are right now as a franchise than by going on to Jacksonville Twitter and seeing how pretty much to a person, man, woman, they have changed their avatars to a tweaked clown face with the mustache to sort of signify owner Shad Khan. Because with the decision that Jacksonville is going to retain Trent Balky as a general manager, there is massive frustration and uproar among the organization because now you're going to have an entrenched general manager. You're going to have to hire a head coach. There's talks about Doug Peterson. So Jacksonville's a mess right now. Obviously, there was the Urban Meyer situation as well. And as somebody that actually thought that Jacksonville had a potential to be good this year, man, did I miss on them. Severely overestimated what Urban Meyer was going to be able to do. That situation obviously spiraled out of control. Now you've got a head coach in search. And in the midst of all of this, you have a young quarterback in Trevor Lawrence trying to find his way, trying to develop as an NFL passer. And Lawrence has struggled. Now, in recent weeks, in watching and re-watching their game against the Jets, Lawrence can make some plays. Lawrence can make some athletic plays. He had a run late in that game. You know, they're driving, they're down five, they're trying to win. There's, you know, 41 seconds left on a second and 10. Uh, the plus 31 is a 20-yard, 26, excuse me, yard scramble to get down to give them first and goal at the five. Now they failed on the game's final play on a fourth down and goal play from the one-yard line where they tried to get sort of a throwback design with the tight end working across the formation, but there's pressure, passes just slightly outside, and you get an incompletion. It wasn't a tight end, it was Marvin Jones. But it's an offense that's sort of struggling to find an identity and a consistent identity in the passing game. Early in the season, it was a lot more vertical and ISO routes, and they were really sort of struggling to get receiver and quarterback on the same page, to get route space and a distribution right, to get into a situation where you had opportunities for Lawrence to make reads and throws. They were struggling to protect them. Many times you would see Lawrence hit his final step in the drop, and routes haven't started to break yet. 
You know, that's a, a failure in sort of route design and execution and, and route distribution. Now, they've gotten a bit more, they've worked some more West Coast stuff into their offense in recent weeks, trying to really sort of minimize the time that he needs in the pocket, trying to sort of get the ball out of his hands, manufacture and protection via scheme as opposed to relying on the guys up front. But it's a, a team that's struggling. There's potential there, but they're still a couple of years away. When you look at them on defense, you look at what they did last week, you know, you're going to see a mix of zone coverages. They'll do some mug stuff and drop. You know, there was a a 16, a 19-yard completion from Zach Wilson to Keelan Cole on a third and seven play at the 6-10 mark of the first quarter where they've got guys mugged up, but everybody drops at the snap. And it's just basically a cover two sort of look. And Wilson reads it right, throws the dig route, and gets the conversion. They gave up that huge touchdown run from Zach Wilson, a 52-yard scramble where it seems like guys were sort of caught between a rock and a hard place along the sideline. Do they blast him out of bounds? Do they just push him out of bounds? Do they expect that he's just going to sort of dip out of bounds? I mean, you've got defenders on the play that are trying to sort of track it down, and they hold up. They don't hit him. And you wonder about what, what that means. All of which is to say, this is an extremely winnable game for the New, York, New England Patriots. It's an extremely winnable game for the New England Patriots. It comes as they need one. You're coming off a bye week and then two losses, which is not how you want to roll out of your bye week, get it into the final four games of the season. Now we do, of course, have a situation that all 32 franchises are dealing with, all of society is dealing with, the ongoing COVID situation. Currently, and this is an updated list as of, looking at the timing on this, just two hours ago, five hours ago, excuse me, and I recorded this at 11.34 on Wednesday morning. Patriots who are currently on the COVID-19 reserve list, Ramondre Stevenson, Harvey Lange, Dietrich Wise, Matthew Judon, Juwan Bentley, Brian Hoyer, Josh Uche, and Brandon King, all on the COVID-19 reserve list. Now, the NFL has tweaked the rules here, the COVID protocols, where players who have tested positive are eligible to return after five days, regardless of vaccination status, which means Stevenson, Lange, Wise, they're probably all going to be back for this game. Judon and Bentley, the timing's a little trickier, because they were put on the list on December 27th, so that would get you when did they test? Did it has positive on the 27th? If so, your game is up the second. 27, 28. So they should be able to come back. Hoyer, UJ Kane, they're on the list on the 28th. That one's going to be a little bit closer. So we might have some players absent. We might have some players back in time for this game. And of course, anytime the quarterback or any quarterback tests positive, you start to wonder, is another shoe going to drop? Do we see Mac Jones pop up? Do we see, you know, Jared Stidham pop up? And so we sort of hold our collective breaths as Patriots fans, as football fans, as members of society. What's the next sort of COVID thing to drop? So that's what we'll be watching for from a COVID standpoint. But this is a game that they should win. And what do I want to see? I want to see a win and I want to see an efficient passing game. And I want to see the defense that we've seen earlier this year. This is a game that you need to come out, get on top of them early, 
Do the things that you have done earlier in the season prior to the bye that put you in a position to win the AFC East. Don't let them linger. Don't let them hang around. I do not want to see this team sort of limp it into a week 18 game at Miami, having won a 10-7 game against Jacksonville and looking sloppy on both sides of the ball. Mostly because, as I like to joke sometimes, my cardiologist won't like that. Again, for those that have asked me about the cardiologist situation, it's all in good fun, it's all in jest. You know what I'm trying to say here. Our collective hearts can't take that. So, a game that they should win. A game that they can win. An offense that is struggling to find an identity. A defense that just gave up some huge plays to Zach Wilson and the Jets. So just now go out there and do it. Up next, some matchups to watch in the college football semifinals. That's ahead here in episode 226 of the SCO Show. Mark Schofield back with you now in episode 226 of the SCO Show. And it is time to talk a little college football. We don't do it often, but with the national semifinals coming up, I figured it was a good time to do so to sort of dive into what we might see on New Year's Eve. We've got, as I mentioned at the outset, we've got two games. You've got in the early game, Alabama-Cincinnati. That's your 1-4. And then that's that's in the, the Cotton Bowl, the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic. Then in the late game, you get your 2-3 Michigan-Georgia. That is in the Capital One Orange Bowl. Now, I wrote a piece that's going to go up Thursday morning on matchups to watch for in these two games. I've got two matchups to sort of focus on in each game. The first one, we'll start with the, the early game, the Cotton Bowl, Alabama versus Cincinnati. Jameson Williams. And... We start there because obviously an extremely explosive wide receiver, probably going to take on an even bigger role now with John Mechie sideline with a knee injury. You know, we, we saw what he did against Georgia, 13 touchdowns this season. I think 23 explosive plays this year. I, I might be wrong on that number. I, I'm trying to pull that from memory here. Very explosive receiver. What is he going to see in the Cincinnati secondary? And I will tell you that a lot of people are hoping to see a potential clash of titans between Jameson Williams and Ahmad Sauce Gardner, the Cincinnati corner, whom I absolutely love. And I did a video breakdown of him that's up on YouTube right now. And so a lot of people are saying, are we going to see those two go up against each other? Now, when you start thinking about, you know, potential CB1 versus wide receiver one matchup, first question is, does that corner travel? Yes, he does. You watch Cincinnati's defense this year. He'll play left side. He'll play right side. He'll play in the slot. They move them around all over defensively. And so they might decide, yeah, we're going to put him on Williams, strength versus strength, and go from there. And a lot of people have also wondered, well, if they do that, does Gardner have the speed, the, the quickness, the lawn speed? Because he's a bigger, longer corner. Does he have the speed to sort of match up with Williams? In a mock draft I did earlier this year, I mocked him to the Jets. Why? Because there's a Richard Sherman vibe. It's not a one-to-one cop, but longer, lankier, you know, tall corner with length that could still play press, that can be zone and man, scheme diverse. You know, I get that Sherman vibe, and you look at Robert Sala and the defense he's trying to build. I'm sure he'd love to have a corner with that skill set. But if you think about Sherman, what did he have trouble with? Sort of shiftier, quicker receivers. That was something that often gave him trouble. 
And so people have asked me, people are wondering, if we do get that matchup, does it automatically tilt in Alabama's favor? So then you start to wonder, and as this is a Patriots show, here's your first Patriots tie-in of this segment, do we see an old Belichick scheme dusted off in the Cotton Bowl? Does Cincinnati decide, you know what? We don't know who wide receiver two is going to be for Alabama. There's there's a couple of different players who could sort of step up, right? You know, when you've got Mechie down, there are other options for the Crimson Tide in the passing game now that they're going to be called upon. You know, there's Slade Bolden, but he's more of a slot guy. You've got Javon Baker. You've got Corey Brooks. You know, they, they've got guys, obviously, that they can throw to. You can also look at the tight ends, right? Jaheel Billingsley and company, they could, they could involve those guys. But is the idea in Cincinnati, we're going to take Gardner, and we'll put it on wide receiver two, and then we're going to take Cody Bryant, the other corner, put him on Williams with dedicated safety help over the top. And that's kind of where my mind went in sort of working through what's going to happen when Alabama has the football. And so the matchup between Williams and the Cincinnati secondary, I think, is going to be critical in that game. Now, the matchup when Cincinnati has the ball, I, I think it's fairly easy. It's Desmond Ritter versus a Nick Saban defense. And Nick Saban is already out there with the bouquets and the love for Desmond Ritter. He spoke to the media on Tuesday. Quote, they've got a really good offensive scheme. I think it starts with the quarterback. He's really smart. He puts them in the right play a lot. He changes the protections. He recognizes what the defense is trying to do. And for the most part, does a really good job taking advantage of it. He's done nothing but play better and better and better this year. And he continued to develop. And Ritter does do a very good job at sort of spun safety looks and reading coverages and things like that. In the piece, I highlighted a play against UCF where they show him too high. They spin it to a single high. He opens to the left side where he's got go flat. That's bracketed. The corner stays well over the top of the vertical. You've got the underneath defender and the spun safety who's coming down. They take away that flat route, and then he gets his eyes backside. You've got sort of a run-through that occupies the single high safety. That comes from the slot receiver, and then he gets to the dig from that third or fourth option, basically, throws the dig. Anytime a quarterback throws backside dig, we get excited. You know, it's why we all love Matthew Stafford. And so Ritter can do a very good job at sort of working through things, working through spun safety looks and things like that. But doing it against the Nick Saban defense, which is coached so well, and they pattern match things so well, and they react and relate to route distribution post-snap so well, that's going to be key. Can Ritter navigate what he's going to see from this Nick Saban defense, which might be unlike anything else we've seen or anything else he's seen this season. Now, there's examples of him doing it against Houston, and I mentioned UCF where they sort of spin things and he figures it out. But now you get that Alabama, that SEC defense with that speed. And, oh, yeah, the guys they got up front. And my boy, who should have been a Heisman finalist, Will Anderson Jr. coming after you, there are going to be some problems for him. So so that's the matchup when Cincinnati has the ball. Desmond Ritter against the mind of Nick Saban in this Alabama Crimson Tide defense. Now we look at the FedEx Orange Bowl. You've got Michigan. You've got Georgia. When Michigan has the football, it's kind of Josh Gaddis versus Dan Lennon. You know, these two coordinators going at it. Obviously, Lennon's on his way to Oregon to be their head coach. Georgia's run defense, gap sound. They slant, they stem, they twist. They do a lot of different things pre-snap. They can confuse offensive linemen. 
They're it's they're extremely quick up front. Obviously, you got the big guys up front too. Jordan Davis, who might be a first round pick. They're very athletic. They're very effective at stopping the run. This is a Michigan ground game, though, that is one of the most explosive ground games in the nation. Like 10th in yardage per game, 12th in yards per carry, 3rd in rushing touchdowns. You've got the two-headed tandem here. You know, you've got Haskins and Corum. You've obviously also got J.J. McCartney, the, the backup quarterback. They like to use him on some stuff as well, some counter-bash things. They'll bring McCarthy in to run the ball at times. They'll do some QB draw stuff with him. Georgia wants to make you one-dimensional. They want to stop the run, force you to pass, and then land in and, and Kirby Smart can dial up with Deontay Lee, who wrote a great piece back in October about this defense, about, about what they do defensively. They can dial up their safe pressures on early downs, their sim pressure stuff, their more exotic stuff on passing situations, third and seven plus. And there's examples of that in this piece that I'm writing. And so that's sort of the matchup. You know, when Michigan has the ball, can they run the football against this front? Or are they going to become a one-dimensional, like so many other Georgia opponents became, one-dimensional, Alabama was able to throw against them. But you have Bryce Young. You have Jameson Williams. You know, this Michigan passing game, that's not their strength. They want to be able to run the football. They want to be able to lean on Haskins and Gorham. They want to get McCarthy in at times to run some QB draw, some, you know, counter-bash stuff with him. Is Georgia going to be successful in getting Michigan to be one-dimensional, or can Michigan run the football? Then, when Michigan is on defense, Aiden Hutchinson, David Agbo, can they get pressure? Do we see Georgia go max protection at times? Do we see them keep tight ends in, keep running backs in, try to get doubles on those two guys on the edges to let either Stetson Bennett or JT Daniels, Kirby Smart hasn't said who's going to take the snaps Friday. He's sort of hinted at a role for JT Daniels. How are they going to protect against those two pass rushers, both of whom might find themselves in the first round come next spring. And so that's sort of to watch for in the second game. So two fascinating matchups. There's a ton of stuff you can get into. I'd highly recommend the two high podcasts with Deontay Lee and Seth Galina. They've been making the rounds recently. I'm sure they're going to do a ton of stuff on this game. So check them out, of course. But that's just my quick thoughts on the national semifinals. Um, next, our third segment of the show, I'm going to talk a little bit about John Madden and his legacy for a bit. That's ahead here in episode 226 of The Sco Show. Mark Schofield back with you now on episode 226 of The Sco Show. And we have a little melancholy happy trails to borrow a line from part of the interruption. Uh, legendary coach, broadcaster, football lifer John Madden passed away on Tuesday. He was 85 and passed away in the evening and at least the evening on the west on the east coast, excuse me, and immediately tributes became started to pour in from all corners of the football world, the sports world in in general. Um, I was about to go on the air my weekly segment with Sportsnet 650 out of Vancouver uh, when the news came in, and you know Dan and Bick, they asked me right away up front, you know, what are your thoughts on on Madden and his his legacy, you know, and they sort of prefaced it with it might be hard to sort of put it into words but it was actually pretty easy for me in the moment because uh, as I said on the air I was in my you know the basement office that I have at the time and in the next room my son Owen was playing Madden 22 and he's 10 years old and 
you know, we, we as Patriots fans, we've talked and people have talked about Tom Brady's sort of three Hall of Fame careers, right? If you break Brady's like lifelong NFL career into different three different segments, you could make the case that each one is a Hall of Fame career in its own right. You could make the same case for John Maddock. You look at his time, head coach at 32, Super Bowl champion, head coach by 40. That's a Hall of Fame career. Then he goes into the booth. And as somebody that, you know, a kid of the 80s, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, you hear somewhere all in Madden, this is a big game. You know, that, that was the soundtrack to my football fan youth. It was somewhere all in Madden. And the beauty of Madden, the broadcaster, was how he brought the X's and O's, the intricacies of the game, so into your living room, you know, whereas before sort of the game within the game was kind of walled off to the casual fan, Madden explained it. Madden taught us, you know, and, and what's been wonderful to see in the moment and in the aftermath of this news is all the clips just pouring out on social media of Madden reacting to plays in the moment. And there are certainly humorous ones where he's breaking down the turducken, where he's talking about the bucket and the little bucket and the baby bucket at the end of the Super Bowls and things like that. But then you also get the moments where he's breaking down, you know, run schemes and in passing schemes. There was a clip of Aikman throwing a slant to Michael Irvin, and he's highlighting how the right tackle had to, like, hold his ground and not give an inch. Otherwise, you can't hit that throwing lane. You won't get that throwing lane. And those little nuanced bits of this game that consumes us all, he was throwing it in our laps every Sunday and teaching us along the way. So his second act, his second act as sports broadcaster, you know, color analyst for all the networks, because he hit them all, is a second Hall of Fame career. But you also get the third, you know, and this might be his most lasting legacy because, you know, the the, the Lombardis, and the broadcasting moments and the clips and the breakdowns in the moment, those might fade away with time. But his lasting legacy might be what I was talking about from last night. A child who's never played actual football, my son, falling in love with the game and learning the game because of Madden, the video game. And as I said on the air, my son, you know, he'll talk about route concepts and he's got a little notepad next to where he plays, writing down the plays that he likes and the receivers that he should hit. You know, on this play, you'll look to RB, then look to A or whatever. Yeah, I told him to do that, but he's doing it and he's learning these things and he's learning coverages and stuff. And he's learning these things, not from me, not from his dad that does this professionally, from a game. And Madden has opened up the world of the intricacy of this game to generations upon generations now. And you're seeing the impact of the Madden generation in the game today. Time management stuff, going forward on fourth downs, all the things that, you know, boys and girls do play in Madden, that's starting to permeate into the league because you've got a Madden generation or successive Madden generations now in the game. On teams, in coaching staffs. And that's a beautiful thing. He has opened up this game to successive generations and gotten them hooked on the beauty of this sport, the intricacies of this sport. You know, and I wrote a piece, I think, two summers ago 
about, you know, my own love affair with Madden. It, I've got, even back to the N64, I've still got versions of Madden that I play. I mean, I could fire up Madden 2000 right now on the N64. Obviously, my son has Madden 22. You know, and there's a bond between my son and I. Like he, Monday night, he was kicking my butt with the Bears. I had the Jags, and I probably threw an interception or two to help him out. But that's a bond that we'll have, and that's a bond that a lot of parents have with their kids, you know, because, you know, moms and dads grew up playing Madden, now their sons and daughters are playing Madden. And that's a third Hall of Fame legacy, and perhaps his most lasting legacy. And so, wherever you're at, fire up some Madden. Fire up older editions of Madden if you want so you can hear his voice. My buddy, Coach Vass, said that, you know, Madden 23 they should remaster all of his audio from the previous versions and get it into the play-by-play. He should be on the cover. Um, three Hall of Fame careers, one incredible life lived in this sport. So a melancholy happy trails to John Madden. That will do it for today. I will be back in the new year, hopefully after a New England Patriots win over the Jacksonville Jaguars, but I will be back here uh, next Monday either way. Until then, friends, stay safe. New Year's Eve, as, as I'm a bit longer in the tooth now, it's not really a, a big night for me. But for those that are going to be going out and celebrating and enjoying, remember it is still a marathon, not a sprint. You don't want to be in a place where you won't remember the ball dropping or the clock strike at midnight, wherever you're at. So pace yourselves. Stay safe out there. Um, stay safe generally. Checking on your neighbors, checking on your friends, checking on your loved ones. Touch base with people. Um, wash those hands, and when you do, sit along and bless those Patriots' reigns down in Foxville.